Let us now turn in God's holy word for our instruction. We turn to the book of 2 Samuel and the chapter 11. This is the word of the Lord. Let us come and hear his word. The Lord, give us an understanding of his word and grant application to our needful hearts here this morning. For his name's sake, let us hear God's word. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass, in at evening tide, that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness. And she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived, and sent and told David, and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go. Down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as my, thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also and tomorrow. I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. When David had called him, he did eat and drink before him. And he made him a drink, and he made him drunk, and sat even and at even. He went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. 
And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab. And there fell some of the people of the servants of David. And Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When thou hast made an end of telling the matters of the war unto the king, and if so be that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto thee, Wherefore approached ye so nigh unto the city when ye did fight? Knew ye not that they should would shoot from the wall, who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerubbeth, did not a woman cast a piece of millstone upon him from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why went ye nigh the wall? Then say thou, my servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us, and came out unto us into the field. And we were upon them even unto the entering of the gate. And the shooters shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants be dead. And thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee. For the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife, and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Amen. So reads God's holy word, his infallible, inerrant, and sacred word. And may the Lord be pleased to bless the public reading of his precious word to our needful and never-dying souls here this day. Let us draw near by faith. Let us come and pray. Well, dear friends, I would ask you to please turn your prayerful attention once again to the words that I read to you in your hearing there in the book of Second Samuel and the chapter 11. Second Samuel and the 11th chapter. Last week, you'll remember that in chapter 10, we considered David's kindness, that it was despised by the new king, the king of the Ammonites, King Hanan. And, uh, well, what happened was terrible. Remember the men that David sent to that king? How they were shamed by that young king. David had had a friendship with his father before that, Nahash. And they enjoyed friendship. But now that his father died, Hanan, he despises David. He despises the kindness that David shows. Someone like Mephibosheth, remember we thought of that friendship that Jonathan had. And then David showed kindness to his son, Mephibosheth. Well, it was terrible. King Hanan shaved off their beards, cut off their garments, off at the buttocks, 
and making those men naked and shaming them publicly. There was no reason to do that at all. And uh, what did David do? Well, he had pity on his men. Remember how he said to them to abide in another place for a while until their beards grow, grew back. It was half the beard that was shaved off. He obviously must have sent them clothes. And the people of King Hanun, instead of repenting, instead of apologizing to David, the Ammonites, all they did was when they saw that, you just notice there in chapter 10 and uh, the verse 6 there we read, and when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David, that is, David was really incensed at this whole affair and all that went on, the children of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Horob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 footmen, and, and of King Maka, a thousand men, and of Ishtob, 12,000 men. Instead of repenting to David and to Israel for the wicked thing that their king had done, what they did was they hired many, many thousands and thousands of the Syrians to fight against Israel. And David, what else could he do? But these Syrians came up against him. David had to defend himself. And, uh, well, what happened was that the Ammonites arose with them and they were confounded by the Lord. Remember how the Lord gave David and Israel victory over the Ammonites and the Syrians. And you remember that David was not to destroy the Ammonites because they were relatives. They were sons of Lot. Of course, Lot had children by incest. And, uh, well, in the end, when the Syrians were defeated by Israel, we notice at the close of that chapter, chapter 10, how it says there, verse 19, when all the kings that were servants to Hadriezer saw that they were smitten before Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians feared to help the children of Ammon anymore. And so these Syrians now didn't want to heed the Ammonites anymore. It really should have stopped right there. But sadly, when we come now to this chapter chapter 11, we read that Israel continued to fight the Ammonites. Now, that is wrong. Many people don't pick up on this. But what is actually going on here, the beginning of chapter 11, is not right. It was right that David fought against the Syrians, and we read how the Syrians served him. But David went on to do what God had expressly commanded should never have been done. But in fact, David wasn't even there. This is part of the problem when we come to chapter 11. David is taking his eye, as it were, off the ball. David is not in tune. He is meant to be leading Israel. Now you notice, if we just go back to Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 19. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 19. Remember how God had commanded Moses and Joshua before they went into the promised land never to take the land, never to take the cities of the Ammonites, never to destroy them. And of course, 
As we read there at the close of chapter 10 of 2 Samuel, the Ammonites did not pose a threat to David, to Israel now. Even the Syrians have fled. They are not a threat to them. Deuteronomy 2.19, And when thou comest nigh over against the children of Ammon, distress them not, nor meddle with them, for I will not give thee of the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I have given it unto the children of Lot for a possession. Now, clearly, Ammon and the children of Ammon have disgraced themselves. Hanun has disgraced himself. They had proven themselves to be helpless concerning Israel, because God was with Israel, and they didn't pose a threat. But when we come to chapter 11 here, after that incident, we read that, have a look there, verse 1, and it came to pass, after the year was expired, that was that same year, at the time when kings go forth to battle. Now, reading um, Josephus Flavius and various Jewish scholars, that time of the year probably would have been somewhere around March. So the year has ended, and now usually kings went out to battle at this time with their troops, and this was the ordinary time. But David, we read here, didn't go. It was ordinary for him to go, and there were plenty of enemies. There were plenty of other enemies. There were lots of Canaanites still, pockets of them here and there, needed to be defeated. But David... What does he do? He sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. It's one of the cities of Ammon. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. So one of the first lessons we learn there is that David, he's not out there leading and commanding the people And things start to go wrong. And what you will notice also is that one of David's sons, Absalom, later attacks the cities of Ammon. And that was a sin in itself. And Ammon did it to sort of bolster up uh, his support amongst Israel later on. And so David's wicked son later on just follows in that same path. But David here... He is back in Jerusalem. He ought to have been, as the time of year was normally, when kings went out to battle. He should have been there. He should have been seeing what was going on. That was part of his responsibility, to be amongst the troops. But David is, we could say, in ease in Zion. He's taking it easy. And despite God's commandment in Deuteronomy 2, 19, the children of Ammon were attacked and they besieged Rabbah, which is somewhere around 64 miles from Jerusalem at this point. So we now enter into a very dark period of David's life. And what we will notice this morning is one sin leads to another. Good men, let me just say, don't just fall. There's usually a steady decline that we can trace in people's lives. Let me repeat that. Good men don't just suddenly fall. 
the weak Christian may, but not strong men, not spiritually strong men. There, you can usually trace backsliding to a major fall. And that's one of the lessons we'll learn. So we, we move now to a very dark period of David's life, to a time of backsliding, not only neglecting to keep his eye on whom Israel were fighting, whether the, and they had plenty, as I said, of legitimate enemies, he just stays back home. Amos 6, 1, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion, and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. We are in the church, but let us not be at ease in the church. You know, we can take great comfort, and David might have taken great comfort in the fact that he was in Jerusalem. Zion is another name for Jerusalem because Mount Zion is there. Now, how did this man after God's own heart, end up behaving like he does in this chapter, chapter 11. We can hardly recognize him, can we? Here is the great one who went against Goliath. Here is the one that would not slay the Lord's anointed Saul. But now, after having been so valiant in the past, now we see him fall. And we want to Learn a number of lessons, I trust, from this passage this morning. Let us trace it back. Well, David should have been out on the battlefield. Of course, it is the Lord's battle, isn't it? But we have to do things God's way. But David is doing things his way here. He should have been amongst the men. And even when Uriah the Hittite, by the way, who's a stranger, who's a proselyte, he really shames David, doesn't he? He says, how can I do this? How can I be here with my wife? When the men are out fighting, when their lives are on the line, David was meant to be a leader, and he certainly wasn't being a leader here. He had left other people in charge, even Joab. And we've learned a lot of things about Joab so far. A very sort of shady character. He left Joab in charge. He should have been out there. Sure, Joab was a mighty, valiant man as far as his bravery went, but he was not the wisest of heads. And not, as we have seen and we will see today, not the godliest of characters at all. Shouldn't have been leaving it in his hands. Well, David had become complacent. Now, there are sins of omission, and there are sins of commission here. We firstly see the sin of omission. David has omitted doing what he should have been doing. He should have been out. He should have been in the thick of the battle. Remember, he was at first... Remember, he was the very one who said about Goliath. He was concerned about God's glory. Who is this Philistine? David was the first one to be out against Goliath when all the men were afraid. But now he is at ease 
in Zion. So there are sins of omission. We have this in the first few verses. And then we have the sin of commission. Sins committed. The sin of adultery with another woman who had a husband. And then the murder of that husband. And somebody might say, well, adultery could have happened at any time of the day, any time of the year. Well, that's true. But let me say, what you see in David is this lack of diligence and obedience to the Lord is what gave way to further sin. And it's always the same with us. Where we are not diligent, where we are not doing the Lord's work, where we are not engaged in exploits, be prepared to fail, my friends. If we're not zealous for the Lord, David has lost his zeal. There should have been due diligence. And where there is a lack of diligence, there is sin. There's always going to be sin. Because you've already compromised. We are not our own, but we are the Lord's. And we are always to be engaged for him. Now, of course, it does not mean to say that the Lord does not give us times of rest and relaxation and things that we can enjoy, but never put those things before the Lord. And I'm sure we've, we've learnt lessons along the way in our Christian lives about this. I knew many years ago when I first became a Christian, I used to enjoy cricket and rugby, and well, I knew that I, I couldn't take those things seriously and walk seriously with the Lord. It's not that I don't enjoy sports and times to do things, but I couldn't belong to a club. I couldn't belong to this or that and walk seriously with the Lord. There, were, there, there is a cost. There is always a cost, friends, if we're going to walk faithfully with the Lord. And lack of diligence is a sin. Remember, we're not our own. The Christian life is a radical life. You say, well, this is just being legal. It's not legalistic. And being committed to a church is radical. Being committed to the Lord and the Lord's people is a radical change of life. But friends, it, it is the, bless, uh, uh, the best life. It is the best life. It's not to say we can't enjoy things. Of course we can enjoy things. We just have to learn priority. This is all part of Christian discipline. David is just doing what he wanted to do. It was not wrong for him to be at home, but it was the wrong time, wasn't it? He should have been out, and we already see how things are slipping. They're fighting the Ammonites here, and they shouldn't. And when we backslide, it's more likely that we accelerate into further temptation, to further sin. Things just accelerate. You see, here's another thing. It's David had a misplaced confidence in Joab, didn't he? And also in himself. The Lord had given David that leadership role and work to do. And you know, it's the old saying, if you want things done properly, sometimes you've got to do it yourself. If the Lord has given you something to do, yes, you must entrust, but you must entrust to faithful men. And you can't just delegate everything. There's some things you have to do yourself. 
Well, we need to watch and pray. I say these things just by way of introduction this morning. Remember the Lord Jesus gave his disciples a task to do in the garden. Watch and pray. One had already fallen. We, we, we read, although Judas was the son of perdition, we, we also read, by transgression he fell. Of course, that was all predicted by God. It was all foreordained by God that Judas would deny the Lord Jesus. And it's only by the Lord we're kept anyway. But Peter did fall. Peter had great self-confidence. But remember what the Lord said to him, Satan has desired to sift thee, but when thou art converted, Peter, strengthen the brethren. Peter had too much self-confidence. David had too much self-confidence. We all have it, don't we? So there is the sin of omission, neglecting what he should have been doing. And now we come to the sin of commission, verse 2. And it came to pass in, at eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David should have known better. David already, we know, has got a problem. And the problem just doesn't begin here. We know he's already taken many wives. We've read in the previous chapters how he had five and then seven. And now another woman, we shouldn't be surprised. He had disobeyed God in taking to himself more than one wife. We should be surprised. He had a problem. Remember Job. Job was a righteous man. Job 31 verse 1. I've made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? And here is David in ease in Zion in Jerusalem. And he's not watching. He's not praying. He's not doing what he, he, he should be doing. And you notice that here the lust begins with the eye. You remember what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 27, Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto the whosoever looketh on a woman, to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. This is why the Apostle Paul says, Flee fornication, he said to the Corinthians. You must understand that it begins in the heart. As we look with the eye, sin begins with the eye, doesn't it? The ear. We desire something that's already adultery, to lust in your heart with the eye sees. Wrong place. Shouldn't have been there to begin with. She is washing. And men can resist. Don't, you know, you, you often hear people say, well, I can't resist. Well, you can. Joseph resisted. Remember what he said concerning Potiphar's wife, how can I do this thing and sin against God? Remember, sin ultimately is against God. Chiefly, and you'll know it, you read Psalm 51, when David confesses this sin, 
Publicly, he says, against thee and thee alone have I sinned. Sin is chiefly, my friends, against God. It grieves his heart. You are his creature. You are made in his image as I am. And David should have known this. David did know it, in fact. But it seems as if God is very distant in his life right now. He's, he's doing everything for himself. He's not doing the Lord's work out there. He's not engaged in the battle. He's taking his eye off the, the ball, as it were. Now you notice, he sees with the eye, and he lusts with the eye, and it leads to notice him inquiring after her. Verse 3, and David sent and inquired after the woman. We know that it was more than a look. Because there was a desire for her. That's why I say he lusted in his heart. Because he desired after her. And he pushed it further. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? First of all, here we have Uriah the Hittite. It was well known who she was. And the the way it is phrased here, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? They were both well known. She was more than likely well known for her beauty. And well known to the very fact that she was married to somebody who was formerly a, well he's still a Hittite by birth, but here he's obviously a proselyte. One that is now following the true, the living God. He was known, notice, as Uriah the Hittite. And as we know from this passage, he was an honorable man. And this must have stung David all the more. One who was a Jew by birth. And yet one now who is an outsider. And we see how faithful he is to the Lord and to the Lord's army and to the ark. How can he do this? Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Covenant with the Lord. Our eyes are the Lord's, aren't they? Our ears are the Lord's. He has brought us lock, stock, and barrel, our bodies, our hands, our hearts. Also says, no, you're not. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Well, here is this honorable, faithful man, Uriah the Hittite. Here is his beautiful wife, known for her beauty more than likely. And, well, he should have stopped really at this, knowing, because the word comes back. To David, notice, and David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he sends some of his men. The word comes back, she's a married woman. And by the way, she's married to Uriah the Hittite. Marriage should have stopped David right here. Marriage, that sacred union that God has instituted between man and wife. David knew the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And David further knew the punishment 
of adultery. Leviticus 20, verse 10, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. David knew that. David understood that. And yet, he carried on. Uriah was also a loyal officer in the army. But nothing stops David. You see, here's the lesson. Sin has no morals. When you are given over to sin, it has no morals. And sin forgets God. Sin wants it, its pleasures. Sin in its pride says, I must have it. It doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter even what the punishment is. I must have it. James tells us, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. You know, many people say, well, the devil tempted me. Well, the devil might put something there, but you know, the Bible says, there in James, have a look, James 1.13, a man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. It's lust. You can be tempted outwardly, but to be tempted inwardly is another thing. There are two kinds of temptation. A lot of people don't realize this. You know, it says that Christ was tempted. Not inwardly. Outwardly, the devil came. But remember what the Lord said? The prince of the power of the air cometh, but hath nothing in me. There was no lust in him. There was no sinful desire. But you and I, we are shapen in iniquity as David. We are born sinners. And my friends, unless we are walking with God, we will fall. David, a mighty man, could not contend with his sin. Could he? No. Here's the issue. He was not content in his life. And he ought to have been. Think of it. And and here's the problem. Sin cannot get enough. How many wives did he have? Too many. Should have only have ever had one. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that he falls into this great sin. The issue is sin is never satisfied. It can never get enough. Never enough. That's why we have to watch and pray against temptation. It's always there. As I said, godly men don't just suddenly fall. You can usually trace it back. It begins with some compromise. And you know, often what we practice, sometimes our children practice because they must think, oh, well, mom and dad did it. It's okay. We shouldn't be surprised about Solomon. Now, it doesn't excuse Solomon. But you think of Solomon, how he had many wives, many concubines, and so on. 
And Solomon should have known, and he did know much later on when he writes by the Spirit his swan song in Ecclesiastes 1.8. What did he say? All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. And the ear never filled with hearing. The ego is so big, isn't it? I want to hear more praise. I want more to my... Pride's all behind it, isn't it? I'll have this, I'll have that. We know much later on in the next chapter, David, thinking he deserves everything, is told a story about a ewe lamb. How that ewe lamb was slain, how it was taken. David got angry and Nathan said, Thou art the man, David. Thou art the man. He didn't examine his own heart. My friends, marriage is a sacred union. I don't want to speak here about this adultery because it's awful. I know it's not a pleasant subject. But adultery can be committed in the heart. The Lord tells us that in Matthew 5, doesn't he? Solomon, much later on, by the Spirit, writes in Proverbs 5.15, Drink waters out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well. He's not here speaking about uh, drinking from your own well on your property. This has a deeper meaning, because he goes on to say, Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad, and rivers of water in the streets. Let them be only thine. Let them be only thine own, and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. There he's speaking about don't pollute your life. You are to be a water to all those around, but make sure you're pure. That's really what he's dealing with in that, those verses. Make sure that you are pure. The scriptures say to the pure, all things are pure. But especially make sure you have an undefiled bed. For he says, rejoice with the wife of thy youth. That's your first and only wife it should be. Sometimes, you see, as Solomon had to learn, not to go in the way of his father. Solomon pierced his own heart with many women, didn't he? And those many women led to other gods. Didn't just stop there. This adultery led to murder. Both are worthy of God's wrath. David not only committed adultery, but murder. He had this man murdered. And my friends, never believe that argument. I'm sure you've heard it. The if-only argument. If only I had that, I'd be happy. If only I had this or that. Never think like that. If only I just had that one thing. What God has given us, we must be content with. And you'll always suffer spiritually with sin. You never get away with sin either. It always affects your walk with the Lord and your relationship with other people.
Sin always does. And here's a fact. This particular sin and what he did to Uriah affected David for the rest of his life. It affected his family. No doubt every time he looked at Bathsheba, the past must have haunted him. And ultimately he sinned against Almighty God. And if Uriah is in heaven, you'll see him. If David's little child that died is in heaven, David will see him. But thank God for a Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we've all done wrong things, haven't we? But the lesson I want us to get from this is that sin is painful. And it is always costly. He not only sinned against Uriah and his own family, but he sinned chiefly against God. And that is what should grieve us at the heart. Sin is not just against others, but it's fundamentally against God. You notice there in Psalm 51, it's that psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in unto Bathsheba. That's the title of that psalm. And he says in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against thee, thee only, have I sinned. You see, here's the issue. All other sin flows out of that one sin. The omission to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength leads to all other sin. What do I mean? When you don't love God, when you don't put him as the supreme of your life, you become the God of your life. And it's all about you and about what you and I want. And that's awful, isn't it? Murder flows out from not loving God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. To not love your neighbor comes from the fact that we do not love God, after whose image we are made and our brother is made in his image. Now, secondly, notice the attempted covering up of David, his sin, in verses 6 to 13. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. So, we see here he lay with her. And uh, what a disaster that was. He lay with her even that night. He inquires after the woman. And the woman, notice she conceives and sent and told David and said, I'm with child. So now David tries to cover up. He lies with this woman that even time now. And the woman conceived, 
and sent and told David and said, I'm with child. Now he attempts to cover up. Now why does he send for Uriah? Well, I do believe that the best commentators really shed a lot of light on this. First of all, he's trying to cover up his tracks. He sends for Uriah to make it look like Uriah's been with his wife. When he knows himself that he has slept with her and she has conceived child by him. Now the first plan, he tries to make it look like Uriah is the father by sending Uriah home, verse 7. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. So first of all, he's trying to pretend that I'm just interested in how things are. You're the messenger. But by the way, he sends Uriah back very soon with his own death warrant. You give Joab this message and he doesn't even know what's in the letter. He sends Joab back with a letter saying, kill this man. But notice the first plan. It's an attempt to make it look like Uriah is the father of the child. And David said to Uriah, go down to thy house and wash thy feet. In other words, make sure you're clean for your wife. Make sure your feet are clean. And Uriah departed out of the king's house and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. He sends him back to his house full of food and refreshments, and everything that he needs. You can see the plan here. But you notice Uriah doesn't go home that night. But Uriah, verse 9, slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. And verse 10, and when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not? From thy journey, why then didst thou not go down unto thy house? He's saying it doesn't make sense. You've not even gone home to see your wife. Well, he gives him the answer. Uriah said unto David, The ark, the ark of the covenant, and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab, And the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go down into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as thou livest? And as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. Now this must have pierced the heart of David. It must have grieved him when he he saw this man's Faithfulness when he saw his loyalty, not only to him, the king, but to God. This must have stung David's conscience. When David should have himself been out fighting as the king, this should have stung David's conscience. It was that time of year, and he was not there. It must have troubled David. But it doesn't stop David. It's a lesson. You can be troubled, but not stopped in your sin. There are many people know things are wrong to do, and yet they carry on. Jireb is saying, in effect, how can I do all this? When the men are out dying, 
How can I lay in bed with my wife? And we have no reason here to think at this point that Joab knows that maybe something sinister has gone on. No, he might have known. But his answer surely is a noble one anyway, isn't it? David, I can't do this. This is is dishonoring. But David is the very man who did what he would dare to do, but did it to another man's wife. It's unspeakable. Now David's second plan, notice, was to get him drunk. This didn't work. So verse 12, And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow, and when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with his servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. Maybe David is thinking here, well, if I can just get him drunk, maybe he'll go back to his house. But he doesn't even go back then. This, again, must have pricked David's conscience. Why is this man not going to his wife? I wonder if he was beginning to to worry and to fear. One wonders. Well, what does David do? Well, he sends him to Joab. Joab was quite good at, sadly, getting rid of men, if he wanted to. Inconvenient men. Verse 14, and it came to pass. This is the third plan. David wrote a letter to Joab. Now notice, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah carried that very letter. He was basically carrying his own death warrant. And what did the letter say? And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. Now that is not only unspeakably abhorrent and evil, but just think of the risk that David was taking. This is wrong anyway. You should never have done this. What if Uriah had opened that letter? One can't imagine. It's amazing what risks sin will take. Verse 16, sorry, verse 18. What we notice is that Joab does this and... uh, We read in verse 17, And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. And so what we see in verses 18 to 25 is hand joining in hand, literally, but they will not stand against the Almighty. You notice in verse 18, Then Joab sent and told David, that is that Uriah had died in the heat of the battle. He did just what David told him to do. And Joab sends a word back with a messenger, verse 19, and charged the messenger saying, when thou hast made an end of telling the matters of war unto the king, you've given him the report, and if so be that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto thee, wherefore, or why approach thee ye so nigh unto the city when ye did fight? Know ye not that they would shoot from the wall? In other words, when, if David gets angry and says, well, 
Why did the men go so close to the wall? You should know that there are arches on top of the wall. But of course, that's not quite what happened. Now notice, who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth, did not a woman cast a piece of millstone upon from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why went ye nigh the wall? Then say thou, my servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Basically, Joab tells the servant to to tell David that the men did foolishly in going so close. And the evidence is that some woman threw a millstone off the top of the wall and killed this man, Abimelech, as well. And by the way, in the process, Uriah the Hittite died also in the thick of all of this. And uh, it's sad, isn't it? So the messenger returns and tells David the account. And you notice what a calm manner David, of course it's all pretense. He knows what's happened. He responds in a very calm manner. Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Basically, David is saying, you know, when these things happen, don't worry about it. Tell Joab not to be troubled. Don't be so upset. The sword devours one as another. This is war. It's just one of those things. It was not just one of those things, was it? This is all David's sin and David's making. But lastly, notice sin discovered. Verses 26 to verse 27. You know that verse in Numbers where the Lord says, Behold, ye have sinned against the Lord. And then we read, Be sure your sin will find you out. It's just sin has many, and it was quite obvious what was going to happen. If he killed this man's, uh, if, if he killed this woman's husband, What's he going to do in the end? You know, sin never thinks long term, does it? Sin is always short term. She conceives. She gets news that her husband is killed. Verse 26, and when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Well, why wouldn't she? He was a godly man. And she was unfaithful. But now how could David hold up his head? Well, my friend, sin does, sadly. What does he do? David sends for her. She conceives and bears a child. Verse 27, when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. Now we have on record, David is on record. Second Samuel is written, the children of Israel know what's happened, all Israel know. Psalm 51 is a public confession of David's sin. Be sure your sin will find you out. All Israel knew. And they know now that this is David's child. But you notice the one thing David had done that is often overlooked 
It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now I want to close with some lessons by John Owen. who was very helpful on the matter of sin. Firstly, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, Satan loves to fish in the waters of discontentment. David was discontent in his life. And Satan was fishing there, wasn't he? And he knew, if he could just get this man to fall, we thank the Lord, he's merciful. And David was forgiven when he repented. Remember this, friends, first of all, watch against discontentment in the life and the beginnings of sin in your life. That's where you must always begin. Are there areas of your life where you are not content? Our contentment must be in the Lord. Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is sure that we can leave with nothing. It could be materialism, it could be lust, it could be pride, it could be envy. Make sure that your happiness is founded and grounded in God and God alone. David had taken his eyes off the Lord. So first of all, watch against discontentment. And then secondly, let me say before I get to what John Owen has to say, if we only hate big open sin before men, then we don't really hate sin at all. Let me repeat that. If we only hate big open sin before men, then we don't hate sin at all. You've got to hate every sin. All sin. The sins that some might call small sins. Hate them because God hates them. And hate them because they destroy the soul and your walk with God. If we only hate big open sin, we don't really hate sin at all. The person that is born again has a new nature. And that new nature desires to be like God. Although some of the old corruptions of sin are there, there is a battle within, my friend, daily. And there is a hatred for every sin. And the Christian hates sin particularly because of whom that sin is committed against. And because it grieves God. Don't hate sin because you're ashamed when you're found out by others. That's not somebody that's born again. Somebody that's born again hates the sin that grieves God. Some people only hate being discovered that they have sinned. And that's terrible. John Owen said, Firstly, consider sin's guilt. Sin downplays its guiltiness by darkening our minds so that we do not grasp its filthiness. Understand that sin is odious to God. It's filthy. Think of the word iniquity. It means filth. It means unclean. Believers, therefore, must test sins, he says, evils against God's love, mercy, grace, and assistance, remembering God's great grief over the sins of his children. That's at the heart of it. 
Secondly, John Owen says, consider sin's danger. Sin's deceitfulness hardens our hearts. Hebrews 3, verse 12 and 13. It weakens our assurance and cripples our zeal. And sin can bring great chastening of God. We know this in David's case here. David lost his child, his reputation, and he lost his peace for many months. Sin can, he says, snap our peace, sap our peace. Abiding sin can cause us to finish our days dull to God's kindness. Most dangerously, it invites eternal ruin. Why? Because those who love sin are not saved. Those who love sin, let me repeat it, are not saved. Those who carry on in sin are not saved. This Christian may sin, but he says, how can we live to sin? We're dead to it. So what is the remedy? John Owen says, charge your conscience with sin's guilt, first of all. First, consider indwelling sin in relation to God's law. Believe that because of your sin, you should drown under the unrelenting waves of God's terror. Tremble before God's throne in judgment, refusing to claim grace so long as you love sin. Don't claim grace, friends, so long as you love sin. Don't say, I'm a Christian, and you love sin. As long as your conscience is able to justify your failure, you will never kill sin. You will never mortify it. There are many other things that we can say. One thing I would say in closing is watch for the signs of decay in your life. Watch for signs of backsliding. If you lose your zeal, or if you are losing your zeal, it's a sure sign that you're under decay. And you are soon going to fall. David already had many wives. He wouldn't be happy with another one. You think about it too. David was at the very prime of his life. Right now, people fall at the very prime of their life. What should have been done? He should have owned up to his sin even before Uriah. And, and, And you know, if owning up before sin stops us from going further into sin, do it. Do it. Don't, it's always pride, isn't it? Oh, what are others going to think about me if, if I own up to this? Well, pride will, pride will destroy a man. Satan uses pride so that turning back becomes totally unthinkable. Always best to confess your sin. Something else, don't take comfort in past achievements. David had many past achievements, many victories over enemy and even sin itself. There must have been temptations in his life when he resisted. But David, now he is weak. And let me say this, you only as strong as you are in the Lord today 
Don't rely upon yesterday's victories. Don't rely upon yesterday's overcoming. Well, I overcame it before. Well, today you may not, friend. And let me say this. Another thing is, when you know to do good and don't do it, we go back to the sins of omission, it's sin. When you know to do good and you don't do it, James 4 verse 17, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Sins of omission can and will lead to sins of commission. Never forget it, because you've already compromised. And let me say this. You see these two sins here, murder and adultery. Both are worthy of God's damnation. Now, where is Christ in all of this? We must bring in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must bring in the gospel. We must also bring in the power of the gospel. Think of it, David, he would lose his son. The son that is going to be born, the Lord tells him he's going to die. Not only was Uriah's life taken, but David's son's life. And then Solomon would become king. Look at Solomon's life. But another would be born from David's line, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what he did? No sin. What did he do? He bore the sins of his people. This is what Peter says, in his own body. Isaiah says, our sins were laid upon him. He who never sinned. He had to come and to live and to die for us so that you, having his spirit, would no longer live unto sin in this life. You would not know power over sin. You would not know sin's power over you, but you would know power over sin. And what a great debt of love you owe Jesus Christ, friends. David's greater son who would come into this world. So how can you go on in sin? If Christ died for your sin, how can you go on in your sin? How can I? He's come to give us life. Life is in the Son. By His Spirit working in us, causing us to hate sin. If the Son of God had to come and to live and to die for us and then to die for our sin, how can we live to it any longer? We can't. We must mortify the deeds of the body. And if we do, what does Paul say? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? If you just turn there to Romans chapter 8, just close with this. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 8. So then that they are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you're not born again, but ye are not in the flesh. He is speaking to Christians because the whole address in Romans 8 is about those who have no condemnation. 
And those you notice in verse 1 that have no condemnation have the Holy Spirit. And they are not after the flesh. Verse 9, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. One once said, it was George Berder that said, if sin live in you, you will die. If sin as a general tenor live in you, you will die. But if sin die in you, you will live. If sin is dying in you, it proves that Christ is in you. And you're born of God. David repented. And he confessed his sin. And God renewed in him a right spirit. But what a cost in David's life. Friends, let us renounce sin. Let us beware of the hidden dangers of it and the consequences. And let us think on Christ who died to save us from our sin. Amen.